You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. As the kids are making their way out, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, that's where we're going to be spending our time this morning as we work our way through uh, the book of Genesis. Um, we come to a significant moment in the flow of the book, in the flow of human history. I mean, if you haven't clued in yet, um, Genesis is just significant. Um, it is rich as our foundation. And uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, sorry, Jared, thanks, buddy. Um, we want you to have God's Word open uh, in your lap in front of you. And so if you don't have a Bible with you, um, just put up your hand, and one of our ushers would love to uh, get a Bible into that hand. Um, my goal is not to say anything other than what the Lord has already said, that we would just walk through God's Word together, uh, and that it would be His Word to us, um, not my Word. And so, um, as I said, looking at, at Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6, um, you'll notice a bit of a change in our graphics this morning. There's a shift that happens. Um, everything up to this point um, was God's perfect ideal. It was his created world before sin, um, before death. It was the world as it was meant to be. And so the, the title of the, the series up to this point was, uh, it was good. This glorious declaration. God says it is all very good. And, and so this morning now the the colors change from the bright and cheery to a little more dark and drab. And as we come to Genesis 3, we shift from it was good to, well, it was good. Um, there's some problems here. This is the world as it was not meant to be. Uh, so that's what we'll be looking at for uh, the next uh, few weeks here. Typically, um, I love strategy games and yet, for one reason or another, um, I do not like chess. Never been much of a chess guy. Any, anyone love chess? Any chess players here? Okay, a couple of you guys. Ever, all the, almost all our chess players sat together. What's going on back there? You guys paying attention? <laughs> um, didn't help. My son started playing chess, and then he beat me, so now I really hate chess. Um, the problem is I've, I've never really learned it. I've never really got into it, and so I've never really learn the strategies and understand the, the moves. I feel like I'm just starting to get my little army moving and figure out what I'm doing. And, uh, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I hear checkmate. I was like, what? How, how come that guy can jump over those guys? And where did this guy come from? If I move over there, you already had someone watching that spot? Like, how did I get in this position? I, I didn't see it coming. Uh, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm done. It's checkmate. Now, the flip side of that, uh, I had a friend in seminary who was a bit of a nerd. There's a few of those out there. And uh, I was in his living room waiting for him one time, and I, I noticed this book on the bookshelf that I pulled out. Usually I'm looking for, like, weird theology books that I can bug people about. Um, this one was even weirder. It's probably a 300-page book, and inside there's, there's no sentences. There's no words. It's just symbols. It's little pictures of chess pieces and letters and numbers. And uh, he explained to me, this is an, an anthology of historical chess games. 
And he would sit and read through this for fun. He's playing back chess games in his mind as they're written out in this code. And and in doing that, you might imagine he became a pretty effective chess player. He was really hard to beat. He played in like national, uh, maybe even international tournaments. And uh, um, he knew his way around. Every, Every move that you would do against him, he had already seen it. He knew how to defend against it. He saw you coming from a mile away, um, and it made him really hard to beat. And and I think the same applies in our spiritual battle. We have an adversary, a spiritual enemy who is against us. He is tirelessly, relentlessly making moves against you, moving pieces into place to corner you, to trap you, to deceive you to draw us into sin. And if we're going to have any chance in this battle, in this, this spiritual chess match that we're in, um, we have to understand his tactics. We have to understand his strategies that, that, that he's using against us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, Paul says, um, so that you would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So, if we are ignorant of his designs, his strategies, if we don't understand what he is up to, um, we'll be outwitted. We're going to find ourselves all of a sudden checkmate of sin and wondering, how did I get here? How did this even happen? I wasn't ready for that. I didn't see it coming. But if we're not ignorant of his designs, if we know his schemes and his strategies and we're familiar with this adversary that comes against us, we have a hope in this battle. And so here's the thing, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, this is it. This is the record of our enemy's designs. This is his game plan. Uh, It's God just kind of pulling back the curtain, giving us this explanation of, of how Satan deceived and defeated humanity in the very first sin. So um, let's read this passage together, and then we'll try to unpack and understand a little more uh, of Satan's designs. Uh, Read with me, starting in in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that uh, it is trustworthy and true that you have given us all we need for life and godliness. Lord, what a great hope that is, what a confidence we have that that this scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching and training, rebuking for correcting in righteousness that we might be fully equipped for every good work. God, we need you. We need to see you 
afresh today. God, would you speak through your word? Father, pray that you would use me. Lord, I thank you for the reminder again this morning that neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but it's God who brings the growth. And so, God, we just want to submit ourselves to the work that you would do. Send your spirit. Um, work in us through your word for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter three begins with an introduction. We meet a new character in the story of Scripture, uh, Satan. And this is a good place to start. Um, There's an old Chinese uh, military text called The Art of War, and uh, most of you have probably heard the most famous quote from it. Maybe you've used it. um, Know thy enemy, right? Know thy enemy. Um, The whole quote reads as follows. If you know thy enemy and know thyself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Now, it's not some great spiritual text. We're not using that as an authority. Um, but his general wisdom um, seems to play out, seems to follow uh, what God says here. Um, know thy enemy. So let's look first at, uh, at this enemy that we have. Um, we're told that the serpent is more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field the Lord God had made. Now, um, there's a lot of questions here all of a sudden. Um, why can the snake talk? Right? Where did he come from? Um, why isn't Eve concerned about a talking snake? Does this not strike her as, as odd? And, and the simple reality is, Scripture doesn't answer a bunch of our questions. It just doesn't. Um, the Bible doesn't always satisfy our curiosity. It tells us everything we need to know, but not always everything we'd like to know, and that's just the facts of it. Um, We can speculate a little bit. Maybe everything around Eve was new and unusual, and so new and unusual wasn't all that unusual. Oh, apparently this one talks. Interesting. Um, Maybe it should have been a red flag. Maybe she should have seen a problem there, and she either overlooked it or ignored it. Uh, We don't know. As for where the snake came from, there's a couple answers there. Um, Firstly, we're told right here that the snake was created by God. He was made amongst the other animals as part of creation. And yet at the same time, it is immediately obvious this is no ordinary snake. There's something going on here. Not only does he talk, um, but he is clearly evil. And our suspicion is confirmed if we look at the rest of Scripture. Um, all the way at the end of the Bible, Revelation 12, uh, 12, 9, says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's about as clear interpretation as you're ever going to get. Um, that ancient serpent, the one from the garden, yeah, it's the devil. It's Satan. He's the deceiver. Um, now, You can write these down, look them up later if you want to explore this a little more. Um, There are two Old Testament passages that are not immediately clear, but but seem to be explaining um, at least partly the fall, the rebellion of Satan. He was created as an angel, and he rebelled against God. So if you want to jot these down and and look them up later, Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, uh, Ezekiel 28, 12 to 18, speak of uh, that event in a little bit of a prophetic, veiled way, but you can see what's going on. Um, Satan, again, created as an angel. So he's not some eternal, pre-existent power. It's not this 
epic battle between good and evil as two kind of equals. God created Satan. He's an angel. He only exists because of God's sustaining him. Uh, And he rebelled against God. And so that rebellion, we'd have to assume, takes place uh, somewhere um, between day six, and God said it was all very good, and this point where we obviously have um, fallen angels and Satan himself. And so maybe the most basic thing we need to take from this is simply that Satan is real. Somehow that has fallen into great question in our day. Um, But Satan is real. There is an enemy of our souls. There is an adversary who seeks our destruction. This This is not written or told as a myth. This is history. Satan is a real, uh, spiritual, powerful, personal being. And that truth is only denied uh, to our great peril. 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Listen to this, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is on the hunt, like a lion. This is serious. I mean, not only is Satan real, but he is not playing games. Can you imagine anything more ridiculous than, than walking into a, a cage with a hungry, roaring lion or even out into the, the savannah where there's a, a, a lion uh, pride there and saying, it's okay. I don't believe in lions. You know, we, we won't make you any less dead. The lions don't care. Our enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He is prowling around. He is watching for opportunities. He's real. He's active in our world. He is powerful and smart and devious. Uh, And it would be foolish either to deny or to ignore his existence. So Satan is real. Secondly, um, that Satan is crafty. He's called the, the deceiver for a reason. Here he shows up in the form of a snake. It's a disguise. He's, he shows up as one of the creatures that Adam and Eve were given dominion over. He's subtle. He's sly. He's shrewd. That's why 2 Corinthians eleven three Paul warns, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. I'm concerned for you that you're going to be distracted, that that Satan, by his cunning and and craftiness, will lead you astray. Verse 14, he goes on to say, For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan's designs, his temptations, they're not obvious. He doesn't come and say, hey, just deny Christ. He'd say, no. He tempts, he draws us in, he's crafty and clever. He's been doing this for thousands of years. He knows the Bible better than you do. He knows humanity better than you do. He's subtle. He's deceptive. Sometimes people speak of, you know, going to a, maybe another country or a different place, and they, and they feel this presence of darkness and this weight, and there's this evil presence there. Um, who am I to say? But consider this, An experience with the devil himself would just as likely be an experience of light and beauty as anything else. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He often tempts and draws not to do things that we know are overtly evil, 
but by convincing us that they're absolutely right and good, that this is what I have to do. This is, my, this is a good thing for me to do. And he sucks us in and he, and he traps us. Satan is real. Satan is crafty. We ought to know our enemy as well as to know his strategies, and we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, but it's significant as we follow this passage um, where it goes next. The next thing we see is the need to know yourself. Know your enemy and then know yourself. This is verses 2 and 3. Satan begins this conversation with a subtle question, right? This little kind of misdirecting question. Did God really say not to eat of any tree in the garden? He knows exactly what God has said. He's not confused. He's not even looking for an answer. He's trying to sow seeds of doubt. Did God, did God really say that? And then the main focus in verses 2 to 3 is not the temptation from without. It's the temptation from within. Look, let me read this again so it's fresh in our mind. Satan, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Satan is our enemy, absolutely, um, but he's not our only enemy. In fact, I would argue he's not even your greatest enemy. The reality is our biggest problem with sin and temptation um, does not come from outside of us, but from inside of us. But one of the most important realizations you can make is that this battle against temptation and sin uh, is one that comes from my own heart. The biggest problem I have with temptation is me. Um, take a look at what's going on here as, as we kind of get a glimpse into Eve's heart. You need to, um, to read carefully and, and, and watch um, diligently. The, 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 the shift in the language here is subtle. But remember, Moses, who is writing this, just finished writing Genesis 2 probably moments ago. And so those subtle differences matter and the first thing we see is that Eve minimizes God's provision. She minimizes God's provision. The Lord originally said, Genesis 2.16, you may surely eat of any tree that is in the garden. Other translations say you may freely eat of every tree. Eve says, yeah, we can eat of the trees in the garden. The words are are lacking. They're, they're lacking in this language of, of abundance, of God's lavished blessing. She doesn't say, we have been freely given access to all of these trees. She says, yeah, we're allowed. There's no appreciation. She's already allowing herself to begin to, to doubt the goodness of God, to wonder if, if what he has given is actually enough. Is it truly Good? Is it, is it really sufficient for me to be happy? And we doubt God's goodness. We, we open ourselves up to temptation. She minimizes God's goodness. And then she minimizes the nature of sin. She says, we may not eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden, that's in the, in the middle of the garden. Is that really the key information there? Is that really the important thing that needs to be said about this tree, its location? No, it's not just the tree that, that happens to be in the middle of the garden. 
It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that sounds a lot more serious. That sounds like a big deal. Let's not call it that. She doesn't want to focus on that. She's already kind of warming up to the idea of sin, and so she's, she's just kind of making a space for it. She wants to sanitize it a little bit. She wants to speak generically about it. She minimizes the nature of sin. We do this when we fail to use biblical terminology for the sin that we're dealing with. Thirdly, then, she misrepresents God's command. So she minimizes God's blessing. She minimizes the nature of sin. And then she misrepresents God in his command, his word. She tells the serpent that that God commanded was that not only don't eat from it, but neither shall you touch it. God had said no such thing. She's adding to God's commands. And, and though we often add to God's commands with a sense of self-righteousness and, and pride, look at me, I'm going above and beyond. I'm doing even more than God asked. God made the line here, and I'm going to hold it there. Adding to God's command robs God's word of authority every bit as much as taking away from it. She's undermining the authority of God, inserting her own authority by saying, this is, this is God's command, insert my words here. And at the same time, it makes God's command look unreasonable. Not even touch it? Really? That seems extreme. That, that seems illogical. Is God holding back too much? Is he being too strict here? So she minimizes God's provision. She, she minimizes the nature of sin. She misrepresents God's command. And then finally, she misrepresents God's heart. Her last words here are, lest we That's her takeaway. Is that really the heart and soul behind this command, to avoid death? Now, it's true. God God did say, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Notice she left out the surely as well. She's, She's not even really sold on that little bit. But is that really what what was at the heart of God's command? This this isn't just about avoiding death. This was about living in in a loving, trusting relationship with God. A good and glorious creator has invited us to to dwell with him and and be with him. This is about honoring and obeying the God that that made you. It's so much more than, than lest we die. It's a command of love. That's what God was after. So see this. Yes, Satan posed this insidious question, but Eve's heart was already making all kinds of allowances for sin. It was already opening that door. Satan didn't do those things. That was her heart. That's what put her in such serious danger. As long as we allow um, the heart to dwell in that fog of, of mixture of of, of half-truths and lies, we are so vulnerable to temptation. When it comes to temptation and sin, um, my first and biggest problem is me. And, and we need to be willing to actually kind of drag our heart out onto the carpet. Let's pull this out into the light and, and ask yourself, do I really trust that what God has already given me is enough? 
Do I trust his blessing that he's, he's allowed me and, and given me all of these greatest things? Then this is sufficient for my happiness. The things within the bounds of his law are enough for me. Because if they are, then I don't need sin. I don't have a hole I have to fill. I'm filling it in him. Ask yourself, am I speaking clearly about the reality of sin? Am I willing to call it what it is? Am I trying to sanitize it and make excuses for it? Am I dressing it up a bit? Ask yourself, am I, am I misrepresenting God's commands? Am I allowing myself to add to or to, to twist God's commands? Or even just to imply in my own heart that, that maybe God's commands are unreasonable. Maybe he asked for too much. Ask yourself, am I misrepresenting God's heart? Am I really trusting that the, the all-knowing and all-wise God actually loves me? That settles it right there, doesn't it? That his commands aren't just about sin and consequence, but about his love for me, his desire for my good and my, and my joy. Do I believe that? Like if you get those things straight in your heart, if you're, if you're really willing to ask those questions and press on those things, that's, that's spiritual Teflon. I mean, no temptation will stick. There's, there's nothing for it to grab onto. Don't, don't leave your heart unquestioned. Don't, don't just fumble and feel your way through temptation. Stop. Just turn the light on. Challenge your heart with what you know to be true and, and speak to your heart. Correct your heart heart. We don't do that well. Our culture screams out, trust your heart, follow your heart, live your truth. Scripture says, no, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Question your heart. Correct your heart. The heart of temptation, in the, in the, in the heat of temptation, that moment of pressure, you, you, you might need to just even speak out loud to yourself. Let's make this real, not just in here. And say, I know. I know that God has given me every good thing. I know that, that this temptation is sin and name it. I know that, that God's commands are reasonable and, and good. And I know that God loves me. And he wants me to have fullness of joy in him. That's why he's given me these commands. So know your enemy, know yourself, guard your heart. And then thirdly, we need to know his strategies. We need to know his strategies. Having posed this, this deceitful question and, and seeing the, the open door in Eve's heart, Satan then launches into his attack. And, and God is giving us a, a gift here. He's, he's laying out for us to see the way that Satan operates in temptation. And he's showing us uh, our enemy strategies. So look at verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Originally, Satan played dumb. Right? Did, God, did God really say? Here the truth comes out. He actually quotes God more accurately than Eve did. And he makes two moves here. Um, he denies the word of God, and he denies the goodness of God. This is shocking. 
Because if we've learned anything through chapters 1 and 2, it's the reliability and the power of the Word of God. And it's the truth and the abundance of the, the overflowing goodness of God. Throughout creation, every time God speaks, it comes to pass. It happens exactly as He commands it. And everything that He creates, everything that proceeds from Him is very good. So by the power of the Word of God, Adam and Eve find themselves surrounded by the goodness of God. They, they, should, not have, they should not have been doubting this. And yet, here they are. And Satan casts this, this doubt on them. And first, we see him, he denies the Word of God. He says to Eve, you will not surely die. The Hebrew construction is weird there. It's not normal even Hebrew. He says, not you will surely die. He front loads it. That's not right. You're crazy. Do you really believe that? It's interesting. There it is, the first doctrine ever denied. The doctrine of God's judgment. And to this day, Satan has not given up on that denial the doctrine of God's judgment is constantly under attack, constantly easily discarded and pressed down. We don't want to talk about that. No, no, no. God is a God of love. The God I believe in, he would never send people to hell. How could you, how could you share the gospel like that with, with judgment and condemnation? We need to just speak about God's love. We just leave that judgment out. But if we don't understand judgment, there, there's no logic to salvation. This is the truth. Now, those of us here might scoff at that, right? We're the ones who are doctrinally sound. We've, we've got this. We have this good, robust theology. We know Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We're not questioning that. But if that's the case, why do we still sin? Because when we sin, we're denying the truth of God's word. We're saying by our actions that we don't believe that disobedience will lead to death, not functionally. We think disobedience will lead to something good. If you didn't believe that, you, you wouldn't do it. So Satan denies the word of God. He undermines our trust in God's commands. And then he denies the goodness of God. He tells Eve, um, far from dying because of sin, that's not what's going to happen. What you'll actually find is that you'll become like God. That's why God told you not to do it, because he's holding out on you. There's something great and wonderful on the other side of disobedience. God's being selfish. God's keeping you down. Looking at it from our perspective, we can see how absurd this is. Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. They were in the best part of the best world created, which God had said was was very good. This was paradise, literally. And they were already made in the image of God. That's who they were. They were already like him. And Satan says, it won't be worse if you disobey. There's no judgment. In fact, it will be better if you disobey. God is, God is holding out on you. 
Satan puts a wall between holiness and happiness and saying, you, you got to pick one. Man, I grew up with that in my head. That's hard to wrestle through. I either get to live my life and have fun and enjoy it and, and have a good time, or I have to sacrifice myself and serve God and, and be drab and dreary and say no to all the good things and all the fun things. That's a lie. That's the lie that Satan's been telling from the beginning. We believe it. We forget. Satan is a liar. John 8, 44 says this of Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning, bringing death into the garden. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's a liar. That's what he does. That's who he is. He's subtle and calculating and careful, and he sows these seeds of of doubt and, and questions about the goodness of God. He waters those seeds little by little, enticing with, with sin, and it, and it grows into this mistrust and this suspicion until finally one day the balance shifts. All of a sudden we find ourselves in a place where we, we don't trust the Word of God. We believe more in the goodness of sin than in the goodness of God. And we take action. That's the root of sin. Every time we sin, we get angry, we lie, we lust, we gossip, we refuse to forgive, we we covet, we envy. We, We do it because we've come to believe that there is more good to be found in that sin than there is to be found in obedience. Put another way, we we believe that there is more good to be found in that sin than there is to be found in God. That's what our actions say. That's Satan's strategy. He does it a thousand different ways, this false view of the world, lying promises about what sin has to offer. And again, as we face temptation, we just have to call it out. Identify these strategies that, that, that take up root in our hearts. Do I trust God? That's a hard yes or no question. Do I trust him? Psalm 119.68, David has this simple but profound sentence. He says to the Lord, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The Lord is good and he does good. And so we should be eager to hear him, to, to want to obey him, to, to live in his law. If it's good and he's good and he does good, then, then I want that. Trust in his word. Trust in his character. And as temptation hits, we just need to take a minute and get some perspective. Get some of these orienting questions. Um, it's kind of like driving. You're following Google Maps. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Um, it happened to me just the other day. Um, I'll call it out. I was trying to get to Derek's place. And he gave me the address, and I put it into Google, and I just started driving. And, and all I see is my little car and the little blue line and the next turn. And so I'm just following the blue line. I'm just doing whatever the voice tells me to. And it wasn't until about 15 minutes into a 10-minute drive that I started to figure out something's not right. What do you do? You've got to zoom out. You've got to back up. And as soon as you zoom out a little bit, well, yeah, no, this is taking me out way past Didsbury. That's not where Derek is. That's not right. 
This is confused. That's, that's not where I want to go, so I don't want to follow this path. It wasn't clear when all I saw was my little car and my little blue line, when all I was looking at was the next decision in front of me. I'm wrestling with that. That doesn't feel quite right, but, you know, that's what it says. That feels right. Once you zoom out, once you can see the, the final destination is, is way out of town, you know, that's nowhere near where I want to go. I got to redirect. I got to change the game plan. These are little things here, and they're leading off to where I don't want to be. And then it's easy to say, hold on, full stop. This is not my turn. I'm not going left here. Step back. Do I trust God's word? Do I trust God's goodness? And if I do, why would I go down that road? Rather than doing that, rather than asking those, those orienting questions, Eve does exactly what we should not do. Look at verse 6. She focuses her attention on the sin. In our battle against temptation, we need to know our enemy, we need to know ourselves, we need to know his strategies, and then there comes the action part. This is what we need to, to do, and it's two parts. The first is turn away from sin. Look what Eve does, verse 6. Let's read it. Uh, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She looks at the temptation. She stops and ponders and wonders about it. She evaluates its virtues. I'm in the process of teaching kids to drive, and you learn this principle pretty quick. You drive where you're looking. If you're driving along and you're looking over there, all of a sudden, whoa, 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 whoa. Look where you're going. You drive to where you're looking. And the more she looks, the more she's tempted. She sees that this tree uh, is good for food. There's some physical advantage here, some value in that. She looks a little longer. You know, it's actually quite a delight to the eyes. There's this aesthetic appeal. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's pleasing. It's desirable to make one wise. It appears to be good life on the other side of that. Some, some higher quality of existence is, is on the other side. And the more she looks, the more she lingers, the more she's drawn in. 1 John 2.16, John is definitely looking back at Genesis 3, and he uses these three categories for the temptation uh, that exists in our world, and, and here's what he says. All that is in the world, he's using the world in a very negative sense there, the world is opposed to the Lord. Um, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So the desire of the flesh, it, it looks good for food. There's a, there's a physical desire there. The desire of the eyes, it's a, it's a delight to, to look at. And the pride of life, it will make me wise. It will make me more powerful. It will give me a position. And as Eve lingers in looking at the fruit, sure enough, before long, having let down the guard of her heart, having allowed Satan to play out his strategy without correcting him, 
He moves his pieces into place, and all of a sudden, it's checkmate. She took. She ate. She gave some to her husband, and he ate. We see here, as well, the failure of Adam. As we looked last week, God created man and woman with a structure. Satan is deliberately reversing God's design. Adam is made protector, keeper of the garden, keeper of God's commands. Eve is created as his helper. And Adam is here sitting idly by. He's abdicated his role. He's sitting there like a lump on a log while his wife does battle with Satan. Ouch. And the moment she ate, he was right there with her. And that right there is is one of, if not the darkest moment in human history. It wasn't just a bite of a piece of fruit. It was the denial of the goodness of God. It was rebellion against God's rightful authority and a rejection of him. And it happened partly because Eve allowed herself to sit and to ponder and to linger over sin. Listen, you've never committed a sin that you didn't think about first. Maybe if only for a split second, but it went through your mind before it came out your mouth. You thought about it before you did it. And in that moment, or maybe a series of moments, that's the opportunity to turn away. To see Satan's devices from afar, um, not to wait till checkmate, but to see those first moves begin to take shape and go, I know what's going on here. That's the opportunity to turn away. Don't sit and look at sin. Don't, Don't allow yourself to consider its benefits. Don't linger and think about what would it be like to just, just to let that anger loose. Wouldn't that feel good? Oh, I could just say everything I wanted to say and more. What would it be like to give in, to indulge just this once, to, to let my lust run wild, just to, just to enjoy that? If I could, just, I could just slip that into my pocket, nobody would know. I could totally get away with it. Look, the storekeeper's not even looking. I'll just grab it. Pretty sure that would be easy. Don't let your eyes fixate on sin. Don't don't give it that chance to enchant you. Look away. The temptation comes, deal with it, call it out, discard it. Call it for what it is and take evasive action. Um, Maybe that's physically. You need to stand up and walk away. Physically, get out of the situation of temptation. You need to remove yourself. But that will never be the final answer. That doesn't, that doesn't deal with the, with the heart. You need to turn away from temptation, but you also need to turn to something. And, and what you turn to matters greatly. And ultimately, there is only one thing that you can turn to. Only one answer to the temptation of sin. You have to turn from temptation to Christ. To Christ. See, there's a bigger picture at play here. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree, Adam in particular as the one who was put in the place of authority, who was given the the responsibility of taking care of the garden, when he acted in rebellion against God, he wasn't just acting for himself. He was acting on behalf of the whole human race. As our first father, he was our 
head. And when he sinned, he not only brought death onto himself, he not only declared rebellion against God between himself and God, but he did so on behalf of the whole human race, everyone who would come after him. Romans 5.12 puts it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's sin infected all of us. Now, before you get too mighty on your high horse, yes, because of Adam's sin, you are born into sin. You are born into guilt and the inevitability of death and deserving of hell. But can you really stand there and tell me that you didn't also willingly walk that path? That you didn't a thousand times choose that for yourself and rebel against God from your own heart? Now, we're all sinners. We're sinners by nature in that we are born into it with this inherited disease of sin, and we're sinners by choice as we freely walk it out. We're sinners. And God's word is trustworthy and true. Sin does bring death. There is judgment. And so we're surrounded by a world of death. Every one of us will one day face death. And we will all be subject to God's judgment and the eternal death of hell. (laughs) That's why. That's why. This loving, merciful God, a God who is so kind and so patient and so gracious. And he didn't just destroy Adam and Eve right there, wipe them out in the moment of rebellion, but instead he himself came into this world of death in the person of Jesus Christ to destroy the works of the devil and to rescue for himself a people out from death. Remember Luke 4? Jesus had just come up from his baptism. It says he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And Satan launches at Jesus. He brings out his favorite weapons, his big guns. He takes the same temptations that sucked Eve in and he lets them fly at Jesus. Eve saw the tree was good for food, the the desire of the flesh. Satan came to Jesus after 40 days with no food and said, why don't you turn that rock into into bread? Why don't you satisfy your hunger? Isn't that worth abusing your power for? Eve saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes, the, the desire of the eyes. Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all the beauty and comfort and wealth, and said, just worship me and all this will be yours. So easy. It's beautiful. It's yours. Eve saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, a high place and a very public place, and he said, throw yourself off. Scripture says that that God's angels will catch you. They'll protect you. Imagine what would happen then. Everyone will know who you are. No one would doubt you. You'll have your place of honor the pride of life. But where the first Adam failed and fell prey to Satan's devices, mistrusted the word of God and the goodness of God and disobeyed, Jesus, who was called the last Adam, 
rebuffed each one of Satan's temptations. Not just trusting in the word of God, but even quoting it as he defends himself against the evil one. Three times Jesus responds, it is written, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That desire of the flesh isn't enough. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. It doesn't matter what beauty you offer me, the service of the Lord is more beautiful. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I don't want that pride of life. I want obedience. Desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life. Jesus says those will never satisfy. Those are lies. They will never truly give life. True life, satisfaction, joy, happiness, it's in the Lord, in the Lord alone. And so Hebrews 4, 15 says that Jesus was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. He overcame. He succeeded. Jesus, as God himself in the flesh, having overcome sin, not once giving into temptation, and yet he still faced death. He still faced a gruesome death on the cross. And in that death, having no sin of his own, not deserving of his own death, he took the penalty for sin that we deserved. And so as the first Adam, by his disobedience, led all of his descendants out of life and into death, the same way the last Adam, Jesus, by his obedience, led all of his descendants, those who were his descendants, by faith being born again, out of death and into life. And that means salvation, freedom from guilt and and the gift of of eternal life, restoration of our relationship with the Father and, and, and life in Him. It's salvation, but it also means sanctification, freedom from the power of sin. There's a, there's a, a promise of, of real life, real world difference now. Romans 6, 6-7 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. When you trust in Christ, you put your hope in him, it's as if that old you, who was, who was the descendant of Adam, who had this inherited disease of sin, who is enslaved to sin, he's put to death. He's gone. There's a new you. If anyone was in Christ, there's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And that new you is no longer a slave to sin. I've been set free from its, from its power. It doesn't have control over me, not like it used to. Verse 11 in Romans 6 goes on to say, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider it. Reckon it to be true. Hold on to that fact. We fight temptation. We make headway in this daily battle against sin by understanding and believing and hold on to the fact that that we've already won, that the battle has been won on our behalf recognizing that our opponent has already been defeated and and living in that understanding that that I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to Christ. I don't need to go back there. 
We turn from sin. We look to Christ. A moment of temptation. We look to Christ with confidence that that by faith, because of his death for me, I am freed from the power of sin. I'm not its slave. If you've trusted in Christ, then Christ has set you free to, to walk in that new life. And it's a battle. It's a struggle. We constantly go back to those old habits of our slavery, the old paths of the sinful mind still entrap us, but but we're free. We've been given eternal life and forgiveness of sin, and we've given the power, we've been given all that we need for life and godliness. I invite uh, Josh and uh, come back and, and lead us in worship. Consider this as Josh and Justin come in the garden. Eve took and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, bringing death. Matthew 26, 26 says this uh, of Jesus in the upper room the day before his crucifixion. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, what? Take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. The very verbs that brought death in the garden that Eve took and ate now become the verbs of life at the cross. Take eat. There's a a better food here. So as we take and eat of communion, it's this physical practice we have of, of turning to Christ, turning to Jesus, turning away from sin and fixing our eyes on him. It's this ongoing process that we have that Jesus commanded of us that that regularly we would fix our eyes on him. We'd be reminded of that again. It's meant to be sanctifying and purifying. As we fight temptation and sin, we're, we're gathered together as the church, declaring together through communion that we have this new life in him. And so it follows from that. This is for those who are believers this morning. If you're not a follower of Christ, we invite you to... Um, to abstain. Um, likewise, maybe you are a believer, but, but your life isn't reflecting that turning right now. You're holding on to sin. You're not willing to repent. Um, then as well, Paul says, it would not be safe for you to partake. You should let the elements pass. But be careful. This is not, <laughs> this is not a call for the perfect. This is a call for the repentant. This is a call for the needy to come and feast, to take and eat. For those who know their sin and are seeking to live that life in Christ, we come for, for life, for help in that battle, to be sustained and reminded again uh, of the death of Christ for our life.